Hi everyone, David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we begin, if you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and want to read or listen to the essential in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy, all about creating a decarbonized economy. You may have noticed that David is not with us today. My name is Anna Gumbau, I'm Foresight's podcast producer, and I'll be filling in today for our host, David Weston. Unfortunately, David was ill today and wasn't able to join the recording, but on behalf of the team, we wish him a speedy recovery and we look forward to having him back. Still with me today is once again Michaela Hull of Agora Energiewende and Jan Rosenau of the Regulatory Assistance Project. Hello team, how's everyone? Good, thanks for asking. Hope everyone's having a nice start of the week. Yeah, I'm good too. Uh, we we, we are going to talk about electric vehicles, of course, later. And for the first time in months, we could charge and get paid. Um, so that was uh, that was quite an experience last week when we got some money to charge up our electric vehicle, which hasn't happened in a long time because of the high electricity prices. All right, Jan, this is very promising news and very fitting for today's episode all about electric vehicles and e-mobility. These are two topics that we haven't really touched upon yet at What Matters, but they are, of course, key in decarbonizing such a big sector like road transport. And it's also one of the most dynamic areas where there's so much happening globally. According to the International Energy Agency, the sales of electric vehicles doubled in 2021 year on year to a new record of 6.6 million. Nearly 10% of the global car sales were electric in 2021, and this is four times the market share that was back in 2019, just a couple of years before. However, sales continue to rise, but much more needs to be done to support charging infrastructure. For instance, in the UK alone, electric cars outnumber charging points by 15 to 1. So today we'll be looking at the opportunities and the bottlenecks to a fast deployment of EV and its charging infrastructure. To talk about it, I'm delighted to welcome today's guests. Mark Coltelli is EY America's e-mobility energy leader and Felipe Smolka, partner and EY America's automotive e-mobility leader. Mark, Felipe, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Anna. Great being here. Now, let's set the scene. Is the rollout of charging networks happening fast enough? And what do you see as the main bottlenecks and the main difficulties? Yeah, Anna, I'm happy to um, to, to start with that one. Uh, it's, a, it's a great intro, I guess, into... Uh, um, you know, to what we're going to talk about today, because you know what what's been clear, as you've said, is that the sales of, uh, of EVs has been at their record levels. You know, since since um, since we've seen the transition to, to electric vehicles, so so there's a huge uh, you know inertia now that that is needed to um, to really match that with with infrastructure, and and maybe we can just elaborate a bit on on um, on why it's so important uh, you know in terms of the infrastructure uh, conundrum because you know we we as 
consumers, um, you know, passenger vehicles, even when we think about fleets, you know, we've driven these cars, these vehicles for, for a number of years, always in the same way. You know, we, we drive them around, we fill them up with gas, um, petrol, diesel, um, and, you know, when, when they run out, we find the nearest fuel station and we fill up and we go in, we, we, we pay, we leave. The process is, is very simple and, and we never, ever worry about, you know, is there, you know, a gas station, a fuel station nearby? You know, will it work when we get there? Um, you know, will I have to enter in all of my details? Uh, you know, we never worry about any of those things um, previously. And now we're in a world where obviously we will know that, that driving electric vehicles and, and charging them is a much different process. And, you know, in regards to the infrastructure, you know, that there is a shortage right now. You know, that there isn't, you know, the same level of, of infrastructure that we've enjoyed with our, you know, petrol, diesel cars. And, you know, it has to move a lot faster than, it, than it's doing because car sales, as you say, are really accelerating. Um, and quite frankly, the, the industries need to come together and do more, you know, to, to ensure that the, um, the rollout of infrastructure is accelerated in, in the same way as, as EV car sales. If I may ask a quick follow-up question, perhaps Felipe may be uh, able to uh, to respond to it. Um, what do you think is the reason why we lack this charging infrastructure? Do you think it's perhaps a lack of uh, uh, foresight that perhaps we're not able to to predict this fast pace in uh, in sales of electric vehicles? Lack of planning. Um, what what do you think are the reasons? Yeah, this this is a great question. And thanks, Mark, for that, uh, you know, kind of baseline of what's going on. I think from, from our perspective and what we look at uh, and some of the research that we've been doing is, you know, the reality is when you look under the hood, there is a, a tremendous amount of activity, right? We've got a bunch of charging networks in the United States. So we've got, of course, most of the people today still charge and will continue to charge at home. I think some of the numbers we have is around 85% of people, 80 to 85% of people will continue to charge at home. And and the lack that is perceived today, it's because, you know, the reality is, you know, you don't see these charging stations with, uh, uh, let's say, with a, it's, it's not normal for you to see charging stations along your routes. And so when you're considering uh, a new electric vehicle, if you don't have that perception that that uh, charging station is available to you right away, you get a sense that uh, this is not the right time for you to go and, and make that change. So there's definitely a perception of that. But I think when you look into the numbers that we see today, the numbers are telling maybe a sort of a different story. The, the U.S. is still lagging behind in terms of number of uh, electric charging stations per EV. So some of the numbers that we see in overall, uh, the numbers right now, it's around 18 to 19 EVs in the United States per charging station. When I say charging station, it's public charging stations. We're not talking about, you know, residential charging stations, destination type charging stations, which are those in grocery stores, potentially, you know, places that you're going. There's a there's a, a charger available to you there, but those are open and available public charging stations. There's about 18, but when you look into you know, sort of the recommended ratio, it's around 10. And, and the reason this is it is because when you're starting uh, uh, with the adoption of electric vehicles, what you, you want to see is a, a ratio that allows you, again, to have that perception that you're not going to be, you know, left out stranded on the road without an ability to charge your car. But when you compare 
you know, some more mature markets like Norway, for example, and, you know, some countries in, in, uh, in Europe, which is, again, they're ahead in terms of their uh, maturity curve. Norway, for example, is about 30 to 35 EVs per charge. And you might ask, well, why, right? Norway is so successful. Why do they have more EVs per charging stations? Well, the reality is they're a lot more mature. People have much better planning in their routes. Uh, they understand that they don't need to have you know a, a charging station every 50 kilometers or every 25 kilometers within their routes. They've got an ability to have a much better planning because they've been doing this for you know more, more than a decade, two decades, as a matter of fact, when they started really investing into the EV space. So. I think I think the answer is, is is a bit mixed. You know, are we lacking? I think the U.S. is doing a lot at this stage. We're putting a lot of charges, a lot of plans. I mean, we're talking about if you just look at some of the numbers. I mean, uh, by 2020, 2035, there's probably going to be about fifty to fifty-two million chargers required in the United States. Uh, about a million of those chargers, uh, non-residential chargers. Within those 8 million, 2 million of them is what we call the public charging station. So to achieve those numbers, we're talking about 350,000 year-on-year additions required to get to 2035 and potentially another from 2035, which is really when the curve starts to, to, to go up, um, about 1,000, uh, uh, a million charges, as a matter of fact, uh, from 2030 to 2035. So there's, there's definitely a, a massive growth. Uh, we're working with a client at this moment in time in terms of, you know, strategizing uh, OEMs, uh, strategizing what kind of charging strategies they, they want to have to support those users on the road. So the, the reality is there's a lot of activity in the United States. You know, there's still a perception that the charging stations are not available because they're not, you know, at the eyesight. People don't see them. But, uh, you know, the, we're not that far off uh, if, if you were to compare us to uh, so the countries, even the more mature countries that we see today uh, with higher adoptions of EVs. May I ask also on the speed of deployment for the cars themselves? Anna said in the introduction, it's doubled in 2022. Is that the, is that the right speed to get to net zero in the transport sector? What can you say about that? I'm also asking because, uh, you know, uh, especially in Europe, you know, thinking about, okay, um, we still need to also, you know, first set up a second-hand market and also replace all the cars in use. So are we on the right track there? I mean, we're seeing a, a very fast pace, right, in terms of uh, just the U.S., just speaking about the U.S. alone. I mean, we're going to end up uh, by 2022. The forecast we have is about three, uh, 3.2 million vehicles on the road that are going to be EVs. And this is including uh, P-halves and, and hybrids as well. The forecast that we have is by 2035, we're going to have probably around 80 to 85 million vehicles on the road that are EVs, which is 21% of the total park of vehicles on the road. Uh, I mean, we're seeing a 40x, right, in terms of uh, adoption uh, and growth of EVs with a 27% CAGR. That's our projections uh, for 2035. So it, it is it's going fast. I mean, if you just think from a jump, jumping from 2022 to 2023, we're talking about almost doubling the size of our EV park. And if you get to, uh, you know, just 2027, we're talking about, you know, probably around 20 million uh, vehicles that are EVs on the road. So it's going to go fast. I mean, it's a, maybe an anecdotal uh, 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 component here. 
if you just look from uh, from the Super Bowl ads, right? So in 2018, I was reading this article the other day. In 2018, we had 12 car commercials, and none of them were EVs, right? And in this year, uh, Super Bowl, I believe there were nine car commercials. Seven of them were EVs. I mean, uh, some of the big companies, GM, BMW, Kia, Polestar, which is Volvo, I mean, they spent almost $7 million for 30 seconds. So as you can see that the mainstream is coming pretty heavily. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, we've, we believe that we've achieved the, the 5% tipping point. So, you know, one out of every 15 v, uh, sales uh, of vehicles uh, are EVs. So 7% of the total uh, vehicle sales in the United States right now is EVs. And, you know, based on history and, and comparison to other countries, which are you know, ahead of us, or they've started earlier, when you achieve that 5%, you know, you, you're at that tipping point, you know, you really start growing really, really fast. And, you know, the mainstream and consumers start to have a much higher confidence into into the product itself. And it, it, it goes pretty fast after that. And I think the U.S. at this moment in time ha- has achieved that. And some of the country, I mean, Norway, for example, achieved that 5%, if I'm not mistaken, in Q3 of 2013. So they're, they're yeah, they're they're much faster in the in their process. There's a lot to learn. Mark and I actually spent some time in Norway, uh, digging deeper into why you know and how did they do, do this, and so that we can take some learnings and bring to to the Americas region. But uh, it's it's been fascinating to see. So yes, yeah, so I, I think the 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 speed is 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 it's fast enough. If if you would say at this moment in time, things are are moving pretty quickly, and that we're going to see a flood. You know, hundreds of new models uh, arriving uh, to dealers and online, which is another big transformation direct to consumer, as some of these OEMs are trying to go to. But um, great, it's a yeah, great great time. Felipe and, and Mark, um, a lot, some of our listeners may may think about buying an electric vehicle, uh, but they still have some concerns about you know, the range that they might be getting. Could, could you talk us through your know, how range of, of of EVs is changing, and you, you just mentioned there's lots of new models coming to market. You, to what extent is it is it justified to have range anxiety, as as people call it, um, or, or to what extent is this being addressed by EVs simply you know getting better ranges because of better batteries? Yeah, and it's a, it's a great question, and um, you know, range anxiety has been a term that we've pretty much used universally uh, when it comes to electric vehicles um you know we always talk about you know uh, that the, the range is is a lot less than their internal combustion engine equivalents um and it's it's a very negative uh you know way of of kind of addressing you know the the ownership experience of of electric vehicles but you know, let's look at some of the facts. I mean, in the early days, you know, it was true that a lot of the electric vehicles that came to market, you know, were significantly compromised in terms of their rangeability than, let's say, their equivalent, you know, petrol or diesel cars. But that's changed, right? And, you know, we're now seeing, as, as Philippe mentioned, you know, a huge amount of new models and vehicles coming to market. We're seeing innovation and technology play a key role in, in making you know, battery technology much more efficient. And, you know, we're already seeing vehicles, um, you know, which are arriving that are doing 400 plus miles to a range. I mean, if we take here in the US, you know, the, the best selling or number one selling vehicle is the uh, is the Ford F-150 Lightning. You know, they're now making that um, in, in an electric version. 
and you know the 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 model can do 400 miles to a range very easily and i think that the whole term around range anxiety as as i said you know is is a term that we really need to switch and pivot to charging confidence because let let's think this through um you know with our with our own vehicles and and, and back in the day when we drove you know petrol or diesel you know we didn't really care too much whether you know we could get 200 300 400 miles out of a tank of fuel um obviously you want to maximize the efficiency of the vehicle and 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 buy one that has you know the best mpg but we always knew that even if the if the you know the efficiency wasn't very good we could always fill it up so so i think where we need to move to is is you know we're going to see huge advancements in technology and innovation that that make battery technology uh, hugely more efficient and you know the term needs to change from range anxiety to charging confidence you know is that consumers and buyers of evs you know need to have the confidence that they can charge you know as philippe said we expect that most people will charge their vehicles at home but where that's not possible and where there are you know longer journeys required or where fleets are concerned you know that the charging infrastructure is adequate enough you know to to instill that confidence and um you know, I think it's an exciting time for, for the automotive industry. You know, we're seeing uh, really exciting, you know, new cars and models become available and having driven electric vehicles, you know, they are a lot more fun than, than petrol or diesel cars. And, you know, I think that the next generation of vehicles that we drive uh, are going to be, um, you know, really fascinating to see the involvement and, and also the, the technology that, that will be derived as a result. Um, you know, and I'm confident that in the next few years, you know, we're going to see, um, you know, big numbers in terms of range capability coming from some of the uh, OEMs. Yeah, just just a component, just a, maybe a, a, a top. May, by the way, having Mark Hotel is saying that EVs are much fun to drive. Uh, that that means a lot. He's a race driver, so uh, <laughs> so he knows what he so so what he knows what he's talking nice. about. So that, that's great to hear. Um, but ju- just if you look at the, the number of vehicles, right, coming out, and, and Mark is right, I mean, range doesn't seem to be kind of a, a real main concern is that one of the challenges seems to be, you know, are, is the charging network going to work for me? Are, are these chargers working? Are, are they, you know, faulting right now? Do they have a good performance? Am I going to be able to charge? Are the lines too big? I mean, right now, if you look at uh, some of the 2021 numbers that we have, you know, as the mile range keeps growing for some of the top end vehicles, you're talking about 400 miles, 420 uh, miles and so on. I mean, the median, right, which is, uh, uh, you know, uh, right, right between, you know, the, the top and, and, and the, right in the middle, right? 234 miles is what we see right now in terms of all the models that are available in the market today, which is quite quite a, a sizable right number. I, I'm, I'm on the early days as an EV adopter. We, at our house, we had the Leaf, and the Leaf had 100, 110 miles uh, and was still you know, we still were able to, to use that vehicle, you know, uh, very well uh, every single day. Uh, most people won't, won't have that need, right? The challenge is if I need to go outside of the state or go, you know, a long drive, 
um, would I have a problem? And can I count, like Mark said, the charge confidence? Would I have a place to go charge? So I think there, you know, the, the mindset's changing uh, from is my vehicle, do, do I have enough miles to, am I going to be able to count with the charging infrastructure to charge that vehicle when I need, which might be sporadically, right? For maybe 90, 95% of users, they do their daily commute with their vehicles, right? So so that's, that's an interesting perspective uh, in terms of what's available in the marketplace, um, which seems to be adequate, right, in terms of mileage uh, for, for most people. I think you've both mentioned something very interesting, which is this change of, of mindset, as, as, as Mark said earlier, right, from range anxiety to charging confidence. And if we look at the bigger picture, um, something that we discuss a lot about is the, the cultural change that is uh, required to a switch to to electrified uh, electrified transport. So, how do you think this can play out in practice? Also, you know, in the mindset of of uh, of the industry, in the mindset of policymakers, uh, of consumers, of course, uh, not the least. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Anna. And and I mean, I think um, I think the the uh, the honest answer is it's going to take um, multiple industries and sectors you know, to come together, to work together, to, to, to make this cultural shift happen. You know, this is probably the first time in in many, many decades where there's such a reliance on on every industry, you know, to participate. Um, not just thinking about, you know, the, the cultural shift that, that you mentioned, but all of the, the factors that need to come together to make this transition happen. You know, I mean, we, we've seen you know, the, the sort of big three main sectors, as, as we would call it, you know, obviously government and public sector play a huge role in, you know, setting the policies, um, building out the roadmap, uh, creating the incentives, you know, bringing legislation together to, to really drive, you know, the change. You know, we're seeing from, from the energy sector, you know, from, from a power and utilities perspective, you know, ensuring that we've got um, you know the, the right grid capability. You know the, the infrastructure that we need, um, and, and the ability to integrate uh, into our current energy system. You know we haven't really talked about oil and gas. I mean, what's going to happen? You know, in a world where we're all driving electric vehicles, you know, what, what will be the role? You know, of, of oil and gas. You know, going forward. Um, you know, we've talked about you know the batteries and and the mining of, of minerals that is required. And then obviously the OEMs, which are um, producing, you know, the, the vehicles. So for, for me, it's it's very, very clear that this is the first time, and even with the work that we do, where we see huge amounts of convergence between industries, you know, and this is really fascinating, but also exciting to see because, you know, we're, we're now seeing OEMs work with utility companies we're seeing charge point operators, you know, work more closely with governments um, and the public sector, uh, you know, and, and this is um, really being driven by everyone's recognition that, that to do this, you know, it's going to take a number of these industries, you know, to work much more closely together than they ever have done before. Yeah, maybe just me adding a piece here, uh, Mark. You know, I, I think it's impossible to ignore that governments have a big role into this. Um, the regulations across the world will definitely, you know, significantly drive the the adoption of EVs. I mean, we're seeing this everywhere. Most of the developed country 
have some sort of a ZEV target. I mean, we, people talk a lot about the big 2035s, right? So the 2035 is in, you know, 100% of vehicles uh, uh, sold in that specific country or, or state in the United States, for example, will, will be or they want it to be 100%. Uh, New York just applied the same rules that California is doing. I mean, we're seeing this everywhere. But what happens is when you have that, you know, connected and concerted approach of going and supporting a, a transition of this size, as Mark mentioned, it takes it takes everyone, right? If you, if you look into the United States, for example, with the uh, infrastructure investments, uh, the Jobs Act, for example, the IIJA, and the Inflation Reduction Act, which just came out not, not too long ago, we're talking billions, you know, $30, $40 billion behind the, the, a massive program on carbon reduction, low to no emission <clears throat> buses, for example. We're getting a lot of discussions with uh, clients in deploying electric fleets for buses, uh, of course, charging uh, uh, grants. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of technology grants as well to help fast charging in energy storage systems as well. So when you look at this and you see what we're seeing in the states right now, I think we've got around 14 states in the United States with uh, zero emissions programs. I mean, the fact is at one point in time, you know, the industry has to suffice those needs. And so, uh, again, we're, we're having lots of discussions with clients and they're somewhat anxious to know what do I do? How do I do this? Because I've got a bunch of trucks coming in and out of warehouses, for example. I'm going to get penalized because I'm going to get a bunch of carbon tax. What do I do? How do I do it seems to be one of the, the biggest challenges right now. But uh, th- that mindset has already shifted, right? So people understand they have to, you know, uh, commit or, or transition and to, to respect the new rules and regulations. And I think this is, you know, uh, you know, likely one of the, the most, the, the biggest driver, the, the most uh, uh, important driver right now in the market is what we see from the, the regulation side of the house that helps us, you know, really push this transition uh, at a fast speed. I'd like to come in again and ask you a a question about barriers. You know, you just talked about the drivers, but one of the things that people keep saying is that uh, what about the grid? You know, can can the grid cope with these millions of vehicles that you said earlier on will be on the road in 2030? Uh, what 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 needs to happen in terms of making sure the grid is ready to accommodate the growth in electrification of transport, and and also what needs to happen to make sure that the electricity that is being supplied by the grid to charge electric vehicles is is clean and reduces emissions? It's a great question, Jan, and one, one that we get asked pretty much every time, you know, we, we're ever speaking, you know, on, on, this, uh, on this topic. Um, so we have to address it, right? I mean, you know, the question around can the grid, you know, handle the uptake of EVs is, is, a, is a real valid one. Um, you know, but I, but I always answer the same in, in the sense that like cars, you know, the grid has been there for over a hundred years. Okay. And it's, it's served us, um, well in the past. And I'm confident that as we move into this, uh, energy transition world, that the grid will continue to handle us and serve us well going forward. But the challenge becomes not so much around, um, you know the, the 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 charging of EVs. It's it's when there you know there, there is significant congestion on the grid. So so peak loads, as an example. So so wh- where we have done in the past, where you know user behaviour, um, people's use of electricity has been has been widely understood. 
as we enter this new world of, of EVs, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of when people charge. And, and that creates a number of challenges, you know, when you're managing, you know, the, the, the overall load and, and grid operations. So, you know, what we're expecting is that there will be significant um, challenges where simultaneously charging EVs, you know, will present certain constraints on, on grid capacity. And, and that's, you know, in that scenario, you know, there needs to be, you know, a lot more done in terms of um, investment in, in terms of infrastructure uh, to enable, you know, the, the grid to operate effectively when there is multiple charging interventions taking place. Um, so where are we going to see some of that? You know, we're certainly going to see that, you know, where the grid is already um, compromised today, right? So, you know, think about city centres, you know, you add 20, 30, you know, buses that are all going to charge, you know, throughout the day, that's going to cause issues. And, and that's where, you know, planning, um, you know, in, in, in terms of grid infrastructure is, is going to be key. You know, to summarise, there's no immediate concern about EV load, but, but certainly the pressure is, is mounting. And, you know, we see that chief among the challenges for utility companies is to determine, you know, whether bulk power systems can meet the expected surge in electricity demand, as, as I mentioned, you know, as EVs are, are deployed in, in bigger numbers. And to put that into context, you know, in, in the US, you know, electricity demand from EVs is expected to add 128 terawatt hours by 2030, and this could rise to around 400 terawatt hours by 2035, you know, and, and that will, you know, result in EVs accounting for 10% of the overall US power demand, you know, as an example. Um, but for us, it's, it's really about, you know, the risks of destabilizing the network will come not just from the demand growth, but from concurrent demand growth as millions of EVs potentially attempt to charge simultaneously. Um, and the more vehicles that are connected to, to conventional electricity networks, you know, the greater the risk um, of security and quality of power supply, uh, you know, will result. Hi, everyone. David here again. Just a reminder that you and your colleagues can get premium access to the What Matters podcast and all of the in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy by subscribing. You can give us a try for 30 days for just €29, Euros, where you can access our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now back to our conversation. Thanks. That's a that's a really comprehensive answer. Um, just one follow-up question, and then then I stop asking you about the grid. Uh, yeah, there, there's of course also talk about vehicle to grid, so you're not drawing electricity from the grid, but actually using the car battery to feed electricity uh, into the grid, uh, and at times when it's when it's useful and when it's needed. What, what's your take on that? How ready is that technology? What's what's the potential there? You know, sometimes people say it's 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 quite tri tricky because of the many cycles that batteries have to go through. Is it really worthwhile? I'm just interested in in sort of hearing what what you see in terms of the innovation that's happening around vehicle to grid right now. So, so Jan, vehicle to grid is is really um, an exciting evolution, if you like, in in this energy transition. Um, you know, this is where EV charging is a system that has a bi-directional 
uh, electrical energy flow between you know the plug-in EVs and the power grid. And, and what vehicle-to-grid technology enables is EVs to store the unused power and discharge it back into the grid. And, and this can obviously improve the electrical components um, performance and add value for EV owners and, and potentially, you know, um, there'll, there'll be incentives to do so. But the reality is, is that, you know, to, to make that happen, um, people's homes are going to have to be retrofitted with, uh, you know, inverters, um, you know, to, to be able to facilitate that, that to happen. Um, you know, we have seen examples in, in other places in the world where utility companies have, you know, been able to offset capex investment in in network um, enhancements, you know, by being able to use the the batteries of vehicles connected to to the grid. But I see, you know, um, the use case for for residential users, um, certainly in its infancy of technology right now, to be, you know, a fairly small use case. You know, I, I see the potential for vehicle to grid to be in, in the much larger, um, you know, fleet operations, you know, where you have multiple big, you know, light duty trucks and above uh, heavy goods vehicles that, that have that, that capability. And, and what that will do is help to, you know, balance the load um, throughout uh, the day um, using the stored capacity in, in the batteries. So, um if I listen to that, I have to say basically what you're saying is this this um, pressure on the grid and pressure on the peak demand is actually not really resolved or we are not yet in a place that this can be addressed right now. I'm asking this because, as you know, um, in the uh, in the EU we expect uh, you know we expect a tough winter. There's a lot of pressure on the price formation and the power market at the moment. EU member states agreed even to reduce peak demand for a couple of months. Now, um, French have announced that they will try to do a, a sort of a mass communication exercise to inform users to reduce two days in advance. They will basically, they see, and then they want to see if uh, users can adjust. I've seen that something like this has been done in California. So already that they were sending messages uh, to people. So um, is there anything that can be done short term? So even if you don't have, you know, everything you need in place for vehicle to grid by text message, you know, have have e-vehicle owners in California participated and is this working well? Yeah, Michaela, it's, it's, it's an interesting, you know, discussion point because, you know, utilities have to play a key role in, in you know, not just the accelerating of, of charger rollout, but also standing up a resilient grid to support EV charging. So, you know, there's a lot of factors um, right now, as you mentioned, um, you know, affecting grid resiliency and, you know, EV charging will, will absolutely be be one of those going forward. So, so I think, you know, there, there's a few things that, that we need to see happen, um, you know, to, to be able to, to really uh, accelerate, you know, rollout of infrastructure, but also, Going back to the point that I made earlier, um, increase the confidence around that infrastructure as as we move forward. You know, so so we're seeing huge bottlenecks right now around permissions for charging connections. You know, and this is taking a lot of time. You know, to to increase uh, you know the charges that we need, and you know we also once we get there, we need to see a much more improved transparency. 
you know, in terms of access to grid data so that that, you know, management of, of load across the ecosystem, you know, is, is, is achieved. Um, and then I think we also need, you know, as I, as I alluded to earlier, you know, working with uh, the city planners and charge point operators, you know, to identify sites, you know, for public charging deployment where, you know, the, the load spread, let's say, um, you know, is, is, is much more realistic and, and easily achievable. And maybe I'll just add a, a point here, uh, Mark. I think if you think at, at, at the short term, right, I mean, uh, what we're looking at, uh, Mark is right, the, the grid has capacity, right, to support EVs. The challenge is sometimes it's distributing that power uh, to the right place at the right time. I mean, what we're seeing in the U.S. and many countries, too, is a, a really, really strong growth in renewables. And when you think of just just uh, on, on solar, right, I mean, we're we're seeing a massive, massive investment in this space. I mean, the, the cost of the solar panels have gone down tremendously, allowing a lot of industrial uh, applications as well as us charging to start using solar with uh, with a cost parity uh, to uh, to using uh, the energy from from the grid. I think the interesting part of this is that when you when you look at that opportunity, we look at the uh, uh, ability to use energy storage right from batteries as well to support this growth. Uh, what happens is by introducing um, renewable energy into the grid, you will need to have the ability to store that energy because, as we know, it's the intermittent uh, component uh, or aspects of that energy you need to store. And I think that the application of renewables within the charging infrastructure is going to be key to support the, the, the peak demand. Uh, we're, we're working with a, a few OEMs at this moment in time and talking to them about what is the value of that battery in the future. You know, how many of those end-of-life uh, batteries coming off of the, the vehicle itself will go into this industry, which we call the energy storage industry. And there's, a, there's quite a number of... Of, of, of batteries, millions of batteries coming out of service in the next uh, five, seven, ten years that will feed right into that market. So the global ba- uh, battery energy storage market is expected to grow tremendously uh, to 2030. And that's one, one of the reasons is the ability to use those same batteries in electric vehicles and applying them right into the grid and this combination of smart, right, passive and active energy management uh, to support you know the, the vehicles on the road, so I think it's an interesting aspect uh, the introduction of renewables to support the uh, the infrastructure as well. Yes, I mean of course now that you've mentioned uh, batteries and and the global um, battery industry and, and and supply chain playing such an important role, what risks do you see on seeing the supply chain being disrupted or totally dominated by one single country? And what is being done to help diversify the battery supply chain to both meet the demand and secure the uh, the supply? Yeah, I mean, China continues to be the predominant you know stakeholder across the battery value chain. But as we see, you know, especially with the Inflation Reduction Act that just came out uh, from the Biden's administration, there's a big push uh, to bring manufacturing batteries into the United States. Uh, we look into the incentives. Uh, to get vehicles, uh, to get the $7,500 discount or incentive on on, on EV sales, uh, vehicles would have to uh, uh, 
respect a percentage of material source from trading partners in the United States. So there's definitely a lot of intent right now from, from the administration to support the EV industry by bringing the technology into the United States and the manufacturing as well. From raw materials, the, the process materials, the components, the cell manufacturing, and as well as, of course, is the, the, the assembling of those vehicles in the U.S. But what we're also seeing is the technology is evolving. I mean, what it used to be uh, NMC-focused uh, batteries. Now we're seeing different types of you know, chemistries that allow uh, the cost uh, to, to produce those batteries to go down tremendously. As we've seen, the cost of the technologies is going down fast, which is helping the adoption of EVs as well. New technologies like LFP, which is phosphate-centric, uh, 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 allows uh, you know, potentially right, other countries to continue to may perhaps enhance uh, their ability to manufacture those batteries outside of some of the predominant areas, like I mentioned, uh, China. Uh, sourcing materials, uh, raw materials from countries in, in Latin America, for example, seems to be a, a pretty interesting strategy to bring that manufacturing closer to where the, 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 the raw materials are being mined. That is also very important. So the industry continues to, to, to vertically integrate in some senses, right? There's a, tons of partnerships. We're seeing OEMs securing uh, gigawatt hours, right, for, for their millions of vehicles they're planning uh, to, to sell in the next few years. That's, that's a very important component, right? So if you think about Tesla and some of the other OEMs, as they continue to invest in their gigafactory uh, manufacturing capabilities, you know, this is the key component, right? The batteries are the key component for EVs. And if they don't continue to invest in the technology side and the manufacturing and sourcing that by closely partnering with some of these producers or uh, doing themselves, right? So some of them are actually building their own batteries, uh, it's going to be pretty hard for them to achieve the numbers that they need to achieve and not get penalized by all of the carbon tax that's coming their way. Um, so I think the barriers are continue to be around, you know, how quickly can we get uh, the manufacturing closer to where those vehicles are sold uh, so that we can continue to reduce the cost? But also, can we continue to see the, uh, the, the ecosystem vertically integrating to be able to support that, you know, those partnerships uh, so that we don't have issues like the supply chain challenges that we've seen uh, up to this point in time. May I follow up on, uh, on, on Anna's question on the supply chains? Did I understand correctly that in the IRA, basically there's provisions in there that um, favor lithium or critical materials that do not come from Russia or from China? And is that a smart approach if... If I can remember correctly, the IEA predicts a lithium shortage. I know. Would you agree with their assessment, first of all? And is that a smart approach then to basically rule out those countries that basically are at the moment the, 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 the main suppliers? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, it's 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 a difficult one to answer because what you you know when you're talking about energy, energy is a of course it's a national security matter, right? So I can understand you know, where, where the policy is at least centering into. I mean, we, we must have, uh, whatever country you are, you must have uh, a level of uh, vision around energy independence. And when you're thinking about this massive transition from oil and gas to, you know, electric batteries, right, whatever the chemistry may be, you have to build your infrastructure 
in your partnerships, your alliances to ensure that, uh, you know, the population that you serve, right, the people, the, the citizens of the country that you're serving uh, are somewhat uh, supported by your policies. Uh, I also think that partnerships are important. I mean, uh, the, uh, China and, and what they've done for, for the electric vehicle industry uh, should be, you know, uh, commended. I mean, it's a, it's an important uh, uh, world partner, if you will, uh, in terms of supporting uh, the electrification of, of transportation. Uh, the, the technologies uh, that uh, have been applied and used, not only in the mining side, but the on the on the the raw materials and the process materials, as I mentioned before, as well as the components, the high voltage, the low voltage cables, the uh, the, the controllers that go, the software piece. Some of those technologies today they're somewhat commoditized. So there is no reason why countries like the United States, North America, Latin America, and some of the other continents we they, they shouldn't be able to apply that same technology and build their uh, sources right and 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 start constructing those sources in a way that is sustainable and future proof. Um, but, uh, you know, I, when I look at the Inflation Reduction Act, I think there's there's challenges because a lot of the uh, EVs that uh, we were expecting to come to the market today, they wouldn't comply with those rules, right? So, you know, starting in 2024 all the way to 2030, I mean, it's going to be a little bit difficult for some of the OEMs to reorient themselves. But what we'll likely see is a spur, right, in the United States in terms of this new industry. Now, we're talking about, again, we just mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, a 5% tipping point in terms of new EV sales compared to ICE. But you can only imagine that now if the industry, you know, really connects into this supply chain and start vertically integrated within the region, we're going to see that speed going way fast. We've got about 4 million jobs, 4.5 million jobs, if I'm not mistaken, in the automotive industry. And that includes, you know, manufacturing vehicles as well. That number will likely double, triple just because to support this industry, right, for all of the manufacturing, the distribution, the support. Uh, for electric vehicles, um, you know, this uh, policies like the Inflation Reduction Act will, will de- definitely support that. I'd like to follow up on the, the battery discussion and the supply chain discussion. I'm uh, currently reading a book um, called Volt Rush by Henry Sanderson, who is a Financial Times journalist. And he's looking at the supply chain in great detail and how it evolved over the last few decades. And one of the things, of course, that keeps coming up is, is you know, to what extent can we make battery uh, mining, lithium mining and battery production more sustainable? You know, w- what what are your thoughts as to, to what extent that's already happening? Um, what are the, the key challenges to do that? Because clearly, you know, there is mining that, that is not sustainable. Uh, and there's lithium mining and, and cobalt mining um, that is associated with EVs as well. Uh, that there could be a lot better. So I'm in- interested in, in in your views as to where the industry is and, and and where it could move in terms of increasing sustainability of of lithium and, and cobalt. I mean, there's a there's a lot of you know investments at this moment in time in terms of lithium extract extraction methods. Right, you have the hard rock mining, which uh, mostly happens in Australia today, and solar evaporation, which is uh, I believe is the is the second. Uh, or, or the, the other way of extracting lithium, mostly happening uh, in Latin America, Argentina, and Chile, as well as uh, uh, Bolivia, with uh, uh, lots of opportunities there too. I think you know when you think about sustainability, and you know 
how to extract lithium. Uh, I believe at, at this moment in time, it's a, it's a, it's a sensitive topic because there's, you know, uh, environmental challenges with every mining process, right? How sustainable do you make it? Uh, how do you do it? Uh, what kind of uh, issues uh, that brings to the environment that you're mining? I mean, any mining, right, has has challenges when you think about environmental uh, 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 sides. But, you know, I think as the technology evolves, as we think about more synthetic materials, or we're, there's a lot of technology going the cathodes and the anodes at this moment in time with, you know, replacements for graphite, for example, using synthetic material. I think as, as the technology evolves, we're going to see uh, opportunities, right, to, to, to think of ways of potentially even using less lithium per batteries because we will have an opportunity to, uh, to, to have better mixes and, and allow that sustainability of the overall mining process to, to be adequate uh, to what people really need. And I think that's the, the other part. I mean, when we think of, we mentioned earlier again uh, around what is the median, right, in terms of EV ranges today, around 200, 230, uh, 240 miles uh, per vehicle. I mean, the reality is, do people really need that much uh, in, in, in terms of range? Um, there, there's some thinking that in the future, people will be totally fine with 150 miles. And if it's 150 miles, what is the size of a battery that you really need? And what chemistries do you need to support that type of journey? Um, I, I work a lot with fleets, for example. I, I come from the fleet space as well. And if you think about just the last mile, which is most of the, the fleet vehicles running today are, are doing less mile, especially after COVID, when direct-to-consumer you know, type uh, business models exploded. I mean, most of these vehicles, they won't do more than 60 to 70 miles, maybe 100 miles a day. And we're talking you know, uh, vans uh, carrying uh, a bunch of load. So I think when, when we're thinking about the, the, the either the uh, hard rock mining or the solar evaporation process, direct lithium extraction processes, I mean, the reality is, I mean, eventually, right, there's going to be a balance between, you know, what is the actual need per vehicle, right, in terms of a battery pack and how these technologies will work to suffice the actual customer need. Today, uh, I mean, we're still in the infancy, right, of EV adoption, especially in the United States. Um, you know, what people really need in terms of range, I think we will continue to learn as we go and the cost will be a play, play a big role as well. If, if in the future, as we mature within the EV space, we find out that, uh, you know, we actually need vehicles to be at $20,000, $25,000, what is the right battery size and would people be willing to, to, to have a vehicle with uh, 150 miles, for, for example, to 200 miles per range with a different chemistry that doesn't provide them that sort of a, a amazing, exhilarating you know, acceleration that you find in electric vehicles, but more of a normal acceleration because the battery just doesn't have that same energy density for energy output, right? So I think there's a lot to be seen. There's, I mean, if, if there's a, a bunch of research. I mean, I keep reading, you know, different types of reports every other week, something new, right? New technologies come up in terms of uh, what are people thinking about the future. And uh, lithium might be uh, one of those, uh, you know, uh, rare minerals that uh, gets a balance within other uh, minerals within, within the battery chemistry that allows us to find a more sustainable uh, industry to support the, uh, this, this massive transition. We are nearing the end of the episode, but before we wrap up, Mark, Felipe, 
We always ask our guests each episode to look at their crystal balls and tell us what they think that the energy transition is going to look like in 10 to 20 years time. So what do you think? How things in our energy systems be different compared to how it is now? Well, well, I see the next couple of decades as hugely exciting, you know, in the in the energy transition. I mean, I think we're going to see, um, you know, in the next 10, 15 years, the amount of evolution, innovation and technology advancements um, more than we've probably seen in the last 100 years. And, and this is hugely exciting, I think. Um, you know, we, we've talked a lot today about how we're going to be moving, you know, to this energy transition world and how e-mobility and electric vehicles will, will play a significant role in that. Um, but I think that there's going to be a, a few things that, that will need to change and evolve. You know, I think mindsets will change, you know, behaviors will change. And the way that we look at uh, and think about our, our energy needs will absolutely change. And for us, I think it presents a huge opportunity, you know, as I said earlier in the podcast, for many different industries, you know, to collaborate and, and make this exciting future a, a reality. Mark, I, I, I could agree more. Uh, the next few decades are going to be uh, existential uh, for, for all of us. Um, you know, I, I think we are already at a point of no return uh, when you think about, you know, what governments have committed, what the industry has committed in terms of the billions and billions of dollars of pivoting towards the energy transition. Uh, whenever, you know, things like that happen, I mean, uh, eventually, you know, everybody's going to be on board with this. So it's going to be an exciting, you know, uh, next few decades. Uh, there's going to be a few trial and errors. There's going to be lots of uh, industry consolidations and as well as new uh, uh, comers coming in uh, with uh, different types of technologies, different types of vehicles. I also believe that, uh, you know, the whole driving experience will change. Uh, most of the electric vehicles, they're truly computers on wheels. They've got, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of lines of codes that allows that connected experience to change. And, and that, you know, might, might also, you know, change the way people want to, to interact with vehicles. You know, autonomous vehicles will probably be uh, well, widespread uh, for most of the types of driving, especially in, in high density uh, urban areas. Uh, vehicle sharing will be also, I believe, a big thing. And that's all going to be made available or, or, or enabled by the technologies coming from the simplicity of design of electric vehicles. Because again, they're just computers on wheels, they're smartphones, or it's just another type of device. And that also applies to fleets, right? So, you know, the types of, you know, movement of goods and movement of people, uh, when you're powering that through uh, uh, electric vehicles, it gives you a bunch of different new use cases and different opportunities. So it's going to be a, a super exciting uh, journey uh, for us all. All right, let's move to the end of our discussion with our section, What Caught My Eye? This week, What Caught My Eye is a book and one that has a strong connection with what we spoke today. The book is called Movement, How to Take Back Our Streets and Transform Our Lives by Dutch journalist Alia Verkade and urban mobility expert Marco T. Bromelstrud. 
It talks about how cities, as we see them, are designed for cars and proposed alternatives of how we can redefine our public spaces and redesign our cities. So at least a very thought-provoking take on urban planning and mobility closely connected with the energy transition. I will make sure to post a link to it on the show notes. So what caught your eye? Uh, Jan, perhaps we can start with you. What caught my eye this week was an article in Energy Monitor that looked at electricity generation in Europe since 1985 and how it has evolved, showing that fossil fuels are down very significantly and solar and wind uh, are up yeah, by a very wide margin now. So that that's a great historical review of how far we have already come in the transition. And it's a great piece I would recommend listeners to look at. Yeah, so what, what caught my eye last week is uh, I, was, I was actually Googling, um, you know, how many uh, new EV models um, are, are coming to, uh, to market in the next few years. And, and I was actually surprised. I mean, I, I went on Motor Trend um, and, and, uh, and Googled it, and I was pleasantly surprised. I think it was like 52 different models that are coming to market in the next uh, two years. And I think this really you know, presents us with, uh, you know, some huge encouragement in, in the EV market. Um, seeing some of the brands, you know, which have perhaps been a bit slow to the uh, to the EV party, you know, really start to accelerate um, and, and having much more choice, much more availability in all different vehicle segments, um, I think really gives us uh, confidence, you know, for the future of, uh, of, of driving electric. Uh, what caught my eye uh, this week was the uh, Twitter, uh, or actually tweet, from Elon Musk uh, that he was excited to announce the start of the production of the Tesla semi-truck with uh, deliveries to Pepsi on December 1st. I mean, this is, this is massive, right? When you think about you know, what was promised back in 2017 or 16, uh, essentially revolutionizing the fleet industry, right? It's huge disruption on how you know, business is done today, the distribution uh, uh, methods that you have within fleets and how do you support fleets on the road. The semi, the Tesla semi comes in and, and pretty much, you know, it's a complete new way of, of, of supporting the economics of the vehicle, the, the total cost of ownership. And this is, this is big. I mean, Pepsi is likely the first one to get it. Uh, they believe it's going to happen by December 1st. Uh, I wouldn't doubt if it, it moves a little bit, given, the, you know, kind of the new vehicle out there. And I think they order about 100 of them. Uh, and there's other uh, big, big corporations that are behind this. So this is an interesting one because there's this, you know, uh, discussion around is our, our Class A trucks going to be electric? Or are they going to be hydrogen? Is it going to be both? So I think the battle really starts now to see how those vehicles are going to perform on the road and, you know, how, how is it all going to work? So I think this one is a, it's, it's a big milestone, in my opinion. Felipe, for a moment, I was a little bit like, because you said Elon's tweet this week, and I thought you meant his other tweet on oh, geopolitics oh God. and the war. I, I can redo it if you think it's best. <laughs> but I also saw this one. Good news indeed. Uh, I also saw a tweet on, um, on actually our topic of today, which went uh, through the German news world, that I guess probably the biggest car rental company, Sixth, um, in Germany, announced that they order 100,000 e-vehicles from a Chinese company, BYD. 
And then you can imagine that a lot of the echoes in the German press around this was like, oh no, they are buying a non-German car. They are buying Chinese cars. But they have ambitious e-mobility targets, uh, like the ones we, yeah, many companies had and have, and we heard about them today. So this is all the time that we have for today. My thanks to Mark, Felipe, Jan, and Michaela for having joined us today. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything that we have said on today's podcast, you can reach out to us, the team, on our Twitter accounts. I am at Anna Gumbau, Michaela is at CitizenSane1, and Jan is at Jan Rosenau. Mark and Felipe are both Twitter users, but they uh, can be reached on LinkedIn as well to answer any of your questions. And if you have any questions for the team, you can also tweet the show at WhatMattersPod or email us at show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Thank you so much once again for listening and we'll see you on our next episode, this time with our host David Weston back again. Thanks a lot for being with us. Until next time.